Well, good morning once again. Um, Got it. If I have the pleasure of meeting you, my name is John. I serve Mission Church as the lead pastor. I'm excited and honored to be with you this morning, especially as we continue uh, on our sermon series through the book, the Gospel According to Matthew. We find our, ourselves knee-deep in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher whoever lived. In fact, in our, our text this morning, Jesus, He's providing us with the fifth of six illustrations in which Jesus uses to depict a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if you would, grab a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to put one in your hands. In fact, we have a bookshelf back there with Bibles in English and in Spanish. We'd love for you to to grab one if you don't have one and and keep it. It's our gift to you. In fact, we have a a box of of 30 more Bibles coming in this week. So feel free to to take that with you. And when you're there, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, I want to invite you to stand if you're able to for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, before us, we have a very difficult text. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand clearly what you, what you mean in this text and what you mean for us to, to walk away with. I pray, Lord, that those areas in our, our hearts that have calloused up because of unrepentant sin or disbelief, Lord, would you soften those calluses? Would you remove them from our hearts, soften our hearts so that we might love you and, and, and have a zeal to follow you? Or would you stir our affections away from the things of this world or the distractions that the world is throwing at us and, and stir our hearts and our affections for you, Lord Jesus, that we might love you more and, and desire to follow you in a, more closely. And uh, God, as I preach this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, we are desperate for you this morning. Lord, you are our rock, you are our redeemer, and we worship you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We dwell in a nation that's founded upon the protection of individual rights. As citizens of this nation, we've been granted the right to life, to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. However, Despite the good intentions of the Founding Fathers, what we have done is we have elevated and idolized these rights. In other words, there's nothing and no one that can impede on or take away from us our dignity, our security, our autonomy, or whatever it is that makes us happy, frankly. (laughs) No one has captured this sentiment more aptly than the great American poets, the Beastie Boys, from the 1986 hit single, You've got to fight for your right to party. 
It might be a humorous song, but it reflects a deeper truth of our modern American culture, which is so hyper-focused on what we believe we deserve, what we believe is owed to us. And what we can demand or, or command for ourselves. No one should stand in the way of what we deserve. For we will protect what is ours and we will retaliate against anyone who even considers taking what is rightfully mine. Consequently, our society echoes with phrases like, Know your rights. Stand up for yourself. Fight for what is yours. We celebrate, we make heroes out of those who stand up for what is theirs, no matter who they hurt in the process. Yet as followers of Jesus, we find ourselves caught in a tension here. A tension between the the current emphasis on rights and the radical life of grace that Jesus is instructing us to live in this passage. And this tension leads us to ask, in a world that promotes retaliation as strength and where seeking revenge comes naturally, what do I do when I'm hurt? How do I respond when I'm deeply insulted? How do I respond with love and forgiveness? Our text this morning provides us with guidance, but it also provides us with hope because it reminds us that When Jesus' rights were threatened, he didn't respond with insults. He didn't attack. Rather, he responded with love, and he responded with grace, and he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so as we follow Jesus, friends, you and I are to also respond to offenses with love and generosity. We are to reflect Christ's character in our interactions with one another. And as we do, the Spirit of God will transform us into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this take place in our text in in three specific movements. And they're very similar to last week because Jesus is continuing the same pattern of teaching. But number one, God's command. Number two, Jesus' exposition of God's command. And then number three, Christ's principle applied. So let's look at number one, God's command, an eye for an eye. Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Here in verse 38, Jesus is referencing an ancient law of retribution, also known by its Latin name, the lex telionis, which is directly mentioned in several passages in the Old Testament, specifically Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. And the purpose of this law was to limit vengeance by ensuring that there would be a proportionate punishment for a crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And on paper, this law was created in order to prevent escalating violence or blood feuds. One of my favorite eras is the Civil War era in history. I love to read about these different families and things that took place during that time. I'm a nerd, I know, but I love the story about the Hatfield and McCoys. Have you ever heard of them? Well, the Hatfield and the McCoys were one of the most infamous, long-lasting feuds in American history. The feud between these two families, which began in the late 1800s, escalated into a deadly cycle of revenge. Each side was retaliating for past wrongs, and, and some were real and some were just perceived 
But the result was this never-ending, escalating violence, pain, and loss. And it was all fueled by vengeance and revenge and retribution. You see, they had no desire to follow this ancient law, lex talionis. There's no desire to settle a dispute in court. Rather, they took justice into their own hands. And, and for them, an eye for an eye wasn't enough. If you are going to blind me, I'm just going to kill you. Is kind of how they lived. But today, the lex talionis continues, and it, and it forms the basis of justice in, in civil, penal, international laws. In biblical times, it guided the judges in Israel. It promoted fairness. It prevented individuals from pursuing revenge. And overall, the lex talionis is good. It's a good law that sought to establish equality, equity, stability, and human relations. See, this principle, an eye for an eye, has a very specific context. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The context of the lex talionis was in public justice. In other words, this law was designed for someone who sought retaliation. Maybe something wrong had happened to them or someone did them wrong. And, and so what they would do is they would bring this complaint before the civil authorities that were responsible for upholding peace and justice. And they would publicly administer a punishment that was equal in its harm. And this public judgment was meant to satisfy that victim's desire for revenge so that they wouldn't pursue revenge like the Hatfield McCoys. They, they would be satisfied. They wouldn't take justice into their own hands. Also, the Lex Talionis served as a check on the severity of punishment. For example, stealing a loaf of bread wouldn't result in your hand being chopped off or blinding somebody wouldn't lead to the death penalty. See, they, it ensured that justice remained fair and proportionate, and it set clear limits for punishment, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And so as Jesus addresses here in, in verse 38, the lex talionis, he's not canceling it, he's not forbidding it, he's, in fact, he's not even going to point out a flaw in this law. It's become foundational throughout history to our modern system of justice. Rather, Jesus is about to address how this law was manipulated. You see, like the Hatfield and McCoys, the Pharisees and the scribes, they completely misunderstood this law, took it completely out of context. They were tending to extend this principle of an eye for an eye beyond the, the jurisdiction of the courts and to put it into their own hands. And their messed up, whacked out interpretation suggested that if someone wronged them, well, they had the right to retaliate. If someone wrongs me, I can do what I need to do. If I'm harmed or if I'm offended, I have permission to return the favor. And as they return the favor, they justified their actions by pointing at Scripture in the Old Testament and said, look, you see it's right here. An eye for eye. Don't mess with me. Jesus says, wait a second. You guys are conveniently missing something extremely important. Consider Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, I am the Lord. You see, contrary to the misinterpretation embraced by the Pharisees, the, the law of God clearly forbade individuals from engaging in private acts of retaliation and retribution. Again, if someone inflicts severe, significant bodily harm, the public courts had the authority to administer justice, but as individuals, 
we're strictly prohibited from seeking personal vengeance. And so Jesus, in our text, he challenges the Pharisees' wrongful interpretation of the law by calling us to something quite difficult, something very challenging. In fact, what Jesus is about to say here is going to rub up against our sinful heart's natural proclivity to selfishness. Let's take a look. This leads us to number two, Jesus' exposition. Hey, Joe, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm just having a really bad echo, and I was wondering if you can kind of adjust that for me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Jesus' exposition of the text, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 39 says this, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Now, it's crucial to understand, remember, when we began, this is the fifth of, of six illustrations here to explain how we are to live a life more righteous than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And throughout this pattern, Jesus is not abolishing the law. But he's fulfilling the law. He's providing a deeper perspective. In other, in other words, Jesus is not saying here, you know what, that eye for an eye thing, that was terrible and you should, you should just not do that anymore. He's not saying that at all. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And the law in its correct context is good. So what Jesus is saying here is, look, if someone hurts you, if someone grieves you, insults you, humiliates you, or wrongs you in any way, do not resist them. What? What in the world does this mean? How are we to interpret this? Well, some, they have interpreted Jesus' words incorrectly. They have inaccurately interpreted them, and, and it has led to an extreme view of pacifism. A misconception about self-defense. Misconceptions that say things like serving in the military is wrong or, or protecting yourself is wrong or protecting the safety of others is wrong. In fact, I heard a story this past week in my studies in which a man stood by as his family was being mugged. He didn't fight back not only to protect himself, but he, he didn't fight back to protect his wife and kids. And, and by doing so, he quoted this text. He believed that what he was doing was right. Not, do not resist an evildoer, Jesus says. But men, hear me this morning. You are responsible as a biblical man to resist evil. If you are a husband, it is your job to protect your wife from evil. If you are a dad, it is your job to protect your kids from evil. Do not take Jesus' words here out of context and fall into this selfish and lazy trap disguised as pacifism. Jesus' instructions here to not resist evil is a general, it's a general principle that requires context for its application. Does that make sense? It's a general principle that requires some context in order for us to apply what Jesus is saying here. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we should stand by and not protect ourselves, not protect our families. We are to do that, and we are to stand against evil in our society. In fact, the Bible is full of instances where resistance is not only appropriate, but it is instructed. Consider James chapter 4, verse 7, which says, Submit to God, and then what does he say? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'm also reminded of the time the Apostle Paul publicly opposed Peter when Peter compromised his Christian principles. Remember that? And then he stood in the way of Paul's gospel proclamation. And Paul resisted him. 
And Paul's resisting of that evil led Peter to repentance. And then Peter, who would later warn us, the devil is prowling around like a lion, seeking to devour. And so what does he do? He instructs us in 1 Peter 5.9 to stand firm in our faith and what? Resist the devil. I'm also reminded of the time that Jesus strongly resisted evil. Especially when evil was directed at himself, or evil, or not at himself, when evil was directed at others, and when evil was directed at his father. Remember, when Jesus stepped out of the temple and started braiding a whip, and he went back into that temple and cleared out the money changers who were defiling his father's house. See, there is absolutely situations and in, in contexts in which resisting evil is necessary. But then what does Jesus mean here? If that is true, then what does it mean when Jesus says, don't resist evil? It seems kind of confusing. Now, I'm glad you asked this question. Thank you. It's helpful. Because not only does Jesus answer this for us, but he, he does so by applying this principle to, our, to several areas in our lives, which leads us to our third point, our third movement, Christ's principle applied. Now, we worked really quickly through the first two movements. We're going to spend most of our time here in, in how we are to apply this to our lives. Now, Jesus, he's established now this basic principle of non-retaliation. And after doing so, he turns to explaining the exact circumstances in which you and I are to not resist an evildoer. And he does so by picking out a couple of basic human rights to illustrate his point, beginning with dignity. Dignity. Look back at verse 39. Jesus says, if, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn the other to him also. Understand, Jesus is not just describing a physical attack here. But he's speaking about a calculated insult. Most people are right-handed, and if you were to hit somebody on the right cheek, you would be backhanding them. And so what Jesus is, is describing here is a backhanded slap, and in the rabbinic culture and rabbinic law, hitting somebody with the back of your hand was an insult. It symbolized a deep contempt and disdain for that individual. The backhanded blow was an insult on someone's dignity, on their honor. In other words, by backhanding a person, here's what you're essentially saying. You are worthless. You are insignificant. Can you imagine that? How would you respond in that moment if someone were to come up to you and say such a thing? Backhand you and publicly proclaim you have no value. You are unimportant. I don't know about you, but my blood would boil. I would struggle with this. My natural instinct would not to respond with another backhand, but probably a closed fist. You see, in moments like this, we, we're all hardwired to either fight or flight, right? And my response in that moment would probably be to, to fight. But Jesus says, I want you to go against whatever your natural response is. Don't fight. Don't run away. But endure. Endure the insult. Endure the attack on your honor. Endure the attack on your dignity. In fact, after you take the first blow, take another one. That's what he means by turn the cheek. Take a second one. In fact, take a third one. Take a fourth one. Consider what Matthew 5 verse 11 says. Just moments before, Jesus says, you are blessed 
when they insult you, persecute you, falsely say every kind of evil against you. Why? Because of me. See, beginning with the first disciples, then spanning throughout church history, and, and, and today as we follow Jesus, here's what's going to happen. As followers of Jesus, you and I, we will endure insults because of our faith. And Jesus tells us, when you're insulted, when your dignity is questioned because of your faith in me, you don't need to fight back to protect your honor. Rather, here's what you should do. You should show yourself to be my disciple by the way you bear that hatred, by the way you take insults, by the way you overcome the evil, and by the way you're forgiving those who insult you. In other words, even though you could probably take your opponent to the cleaners, you don't, but rather you lovingly absorb the insults. Why would we do such a thing? Well, because we follow a Savior who did not respond to personal vengeance, to any type of evil that was directed at Him personally. Think about this. In the face of physical abuse, in the face of mockery from the religious leaders and from the Roman soldiers, Jesus did not retaliate. He had the power to. He most definitely had the power to wipe uh, uh, everyone out, but His power was kept in complete control as He fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Remember what Isaiah says in chapter 50, verse 6. He says, prophesying, pointing to Jesus, I gave my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Even on the cross, Jesus, what did He do? Even as He hung there on the cross, He prayed for the forgiveness of those who were tormenting Him, mocking Him. Peter is helpful. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, verse 3. Verse 23, he says, For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor to God. For you were called to this. Brothers and sisters, you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He didn't commit sin. He had no deceit found in his mouth. And when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Think about this. As you and I follow Jesus, we follow his example in every area of our lives, which means when our dignity is attacked, when we are insulted because of our faith and our love for Jesus, we do not retaliate. We don't seek revenge. Instead, like Jesus, we entrust our defense to God because we know that in God's kingdom, we will be exalted. In God's kingdom, there will be a day when we are vindicated. And not only that, but we endure because why? Ask me why. Because we're living on mission. We have a purpose to, to this. You see, we, we turn the other cheek with the intention of making our attacker or pointing our attacker to the good news of the gospel. See, our focus in that moment is not only glorifying God, but pointing that one who insults us to the power of Jesus. See, their salvation is our center, is the center of our focus in that moment. We think of them and we adjust our actions and how we are responding in that moment so that we might point them to Christ, knowing that how we love them points them to the good news of the gospel and how Jesus has loved us. 
Brothers and sisters, as we follow Jesus, this is how we are to respond to personal insult. This is how we are to respond when our personal honor and worth and dignity are questioned and attacked, and specifically when we are attacked because of our faith. Now Jesus continues, you see, not only are we to resist when someone attacks our dignity, but we are also called to endure any attack on our security. Security. Look at verse 40. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Now to fully grasp what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand that Jesus is referencing a legal dispute. And in this dispute, someone is suing a follower of Jesus over a debt. And whether they are being sued rightfully or wrongfully, the plaintiff here aims to collect the debt by literally suing them for the shirt off their back. Now it's helpful to note that in ancient times, clothing held a significant value. It served as a means of security, especially a coat. In your other versions of the Bible, it may say cloak or a robe, this outer garment. You see, a regular blue-collar guy would typically have owned just a couple of pieces of clothing, which included this inner shirt and, and an outer coat. And that's because the coat, it, it, and the law, it, let me step back for a minute. They, they own these few items, the inner shirt and the coat. And the law allowed for the shirt to be seized. But it did not allow for the coat to be seized. So you can sue someone for their inner shirt, but you were not allowed to sue them for their coat. Does that make sense? Are you with me? And here's why. Because culturally, they saw the importance of that coat. It served not only as the man's essential covering, but it also functioned as his, as his blanket during the night. It, function, it, it served this man and this woman as, as means of safety. It kept them safe. You see, the coat was so vitally important that no one could lawfully take it away from them. And Jesus flips the script, and he says, look, when you are being falsely accused... When you are falsely sued for the shirt off your back and they win and you have to give them their shirt, your shirt, even though they cannot legally take it, you know what you should do? You should give them your coat too. In other words, fulfill the requirements of the law and then take another step. Extend your generosity further than what you're obligated to extend. Now, it's important to, to note that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's not instructing us to give everything away until we are cold and naked. Rather, he's commanding us in this moment by using this illustration to stop worrying what other people think about you and he's instructing us to quit devoting ourselves to defending our honor. Now why in the world would Jesus tell us to do this? Why would he challenge you and I as followers of him to go beyond the legal requirements here? Especially if we are being falsely accused. That's messed up, right? Well, I don't know about you, but for me, there's nothing worse than being falsely accused. It's horrible. Think about this. If you want to make someone angry, accuse them for something that they did not do, and watch what happens. I did this the other day to my son. <laughs> I started blaming him for something my daughter did, and I was so convinced that it was him, because it usually is, right? And so I'm getting on to him like, dude, what is wrong with you? Why would you do this? And he's pleading with me. Daddy, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And his blood is starting boiling. I see his face turning red. And I'm like, bro, it was you. 
He's like, I promise you, Daddy, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And then I look over, and out of the corner of my eye, I see my daughter in the corner just kind of snickering. And I thought, you were set up. (laughs) You were set up. And I profusely apologized to my son. But the truth is, all of us can relate to that feeling, can't we? That feeling that my son had in the pit of his stomach, that moment I was falsely accusing him. At one point or another, we have all, all of us have been criticized for something that we did not do. We have been blamed for something that we did not do. And how do we usually respond to that situation? Honestly, how do we respond in those moments? Like my son, we are quick to defend our honor. And we, quick, we are quick to verbally assault one another out of a means of, of retaliation. It wasn't me. How dare you? If, you? if you just think once in a while, maybe your tiny brain could process what is happening here. That's essentially what my son was trying to say to me. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop it. And Jesus says, stop. Stop fighting for honor. Just turn the other cheek. Let others defraud you. And let God defend you. Now I get it. This concept is easier said than done. Because it completely defies our sinful nature. Jesus is calling us to root our hearts in Him. He's calling us to trust in Him for justice. To trust in Him for vindication. To trust in His sovereignty. And His providence. And His control. This is what He's calling us to. Think about it. If you're here this morning and you have been humbled by the reality of your sin and you know that you're guilty before a holy and righteous God, you know that as a result of your sin, the only thing that you deserve this morning, if God were to give you what you deserve and what you have earned, it is death and hell. And you're humbled by that. But you also recognize that God is so good and that God is gracious and because of His mercy, and because of His grace, that you have been saved. And not a result of anything that you've done, or anything that you have earned, or or it's it's not a result of, of your knowledge of the Bible, or how good you have been. But it's because of what Christ has done for you. And the result is, you refuse to protest false accusations. Because if God has saved you from death and hell, the death and hell that we've earned and deserved, then you have full faith and confidence that He will rescue you from whatever false accusation that may be thrown at you. And so in that moment, with a right gospel understanding, you don't need to retaliate. You don't need to respond. But you can turn the other cheek. You can give them not only your shirt, but your coat as well. Now his last two illustrations, Jesus continues His ban on retaliation And he does so by requiring us to show kindness to those who are insulting us. And this third illustration is particularly offensive, for it rubs up against one of our most idolized human rights, our autonomy. Look at verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. What in the world does this mean? Well, Israel, it was an occupied territory under Roman rule. And the Roman soldiers, they had the authority of commandeering a citizen and and grabbing them and saying, carry my equipment. And they had the authority to instruct someone to do so for up to a thousand paces, which is about the equivalent of a, a mile for us. And this is what Jesus is referring here, referring to. Think about this for a moment. You're being occupied and oppressed 
by a foreign rule. And your oppressor comes up to you and forces you to carry the very tools that he is using to oppress you with. How would you feel in that moment? Now, Roman rule was intense. Roman soldiers, they were tough. They were the Navy SEALs of their day. And resistance may have been futile. (laughs) It may have even caused more harm trying to fight back. But Jesus, he doesn't just say, look, just do what they say with a smile and with a pure heart. I mean, that would be enough, right? Considering the context, to do so with a pure heart and with a smile, that would be enough. But that's not at all what Jesus says here. He has something more in mind. He says, once you've fulfilled what you're lawfully required to do, freely carry their equipment for another mile. I can't help but think about how Jesus was mistreated Not only was Jesus falsely accused, but he was humiliated, he was beaten, and yet he still turned the other cheek. And not only that, but he went the extra mile. Remember, he died for the Roman soldiers who were mocking him and ridiculed him. He died for those who were nailing his hands and his feet to the cross. He he was dying for the very people that were murdering him. And why? Why? Because he knew that for all who repent and believe, they will be saved. And we see this clearly in the heart of Christ. When he proclaimed from the cross again, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And with the same compassionate heart of Christ, with the same zeal for the mission of seeing the lost saved, we are not only called to fulfill our obligation with a willing attitude and with a smile, but Jesus instructs us, go the extra mile. But why? Why why should we continue to serve? Why should we continue to care for someone who is hurting us? Why should we carry the burden for someone longer than we have to? Well, because the obligation dictated the first mile, but compassion directs the second. And no doubt, imagine you're in this illustration that Jesus is pointing to here. There's no doubt that the Roman soldier would have been shocked and would have wondered why in the world you're still walking with them. You could have dropped my stuff about ten paces ago, but you're still with me. Why? Why are you still serving me when it's no longer required? And it's in that moment when you are going the extra mile, whether that is serving or caring for an enemy, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's jury duty, that extra mile provides gospel opportunities. It's during that extra mile that we get to say, the reason why I am serving you is because I have been served. In fact, let me tell you about the one who came to serve both of us and bore all of our burdens and sin on the cross. And he didn't just walk with us for a mile, but he went the extra mile because he completely wiped away all of our sin. Brothers and sisters, I don't know whose burden you're being forced to carry. Or what autonomy you're being forced to give up. It could be as simple as doing the dishes. It could be as annoying as doing, having to do jury duty. I, I don't know. But I do know that as followers of Jesus, we should carry the burden and give up our autonomy with a cheerful and obedient heart because we know how heavy the burden was that Christ carried for us. And we know that in Christ there is no freedom There is no autonomy that this world can take away from us. 
You see, our, our freedom and our autonomy is secure in Him. And so as a result, we're free to give up our time. We're free to clear our calendars to serve others. See, just as Christ emptied Himself by assuming the form of a servant and humbled Himself by, 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 humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, Paul writes in Philippians, even death on a cross, as we follow Him, we in return, here's what we do. We die to our selfish wants. We, do, we die to our plans. We die to our calendar in order for us to go the extra mile in serving others, thereby pointing them to the One who more perfectly came to serve them, Jesus Christ. Now, not only are we free to give up our autonomy, but we're also called to give up our possessions. This is the last um, illustration that Jesus uses here. Look at verse 42. You guys doing okay? I know it's a tough text. You're with me? All right. He says, give to the one who asks. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What does Jesus mean here? To give to the one who asks you. Does this mean that there's no exceptions? I'm reminded of a, a, a pretty rough movie, but in this movie, the main character is, is instructed to say yes to everything, which gets him in a few pickles here and there. No matter what it is, he has to say yes to. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Is it our job to give to everyone who asks of us? No matter what the situation or context may be? Are we, is Jesus telling us that we are to fund whatever destructive habits? Am I to say yes to my son in every circumstance that he asks for ice cream and candy and, and to do things that I know that will hurt him? Is that what this is? Give to the one who asks of you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Well, there are teachers who would say yes. In fact, I've heard this verse used and abused and misused over the years, and, and I've seen how the mishandling of this specific verse has really hurt people. In fact, there's a, there's a pastor who I respect. His name's Don Carson, and he tells a story about a Cambridge University research student who had a tender conscience and who was taught this verse in a, in a way that was out of context. And this wrong interpretation of what Jesus was saying here, it resulted in this young man going bankrupt. Not to mention, he went without food. He had no more clothes. He supplied half a dozen men around Cambridge University with the alcohol that they would have been better off without. His motivations were pure. He was trying to, to be obedient here, but his actions were based on a misunderstanding and a misapplication of Christ's teaching. And so what is Jesus saying here? What does he mean when he tells us to give to anyone who asks us? Well, remember that Jesus is speaking to the righteous, and they are to give to those who are attempting to hurt them by taking what is theirs, what they need. Luke says it like this. Luke chapter 6, verse 35, he says, love your enemies. See, the context of this is an enemy. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. 
See, understand, Jesus is instructing those of us who are being persecuted for our faith, and when our persecutor, the person who is attacking us, trying to strip strip us of our dignity, who's trying to hurt us because of our faith in Christ, when they come up to us and ask us for what they know we need to survive, we joyfully give it to them. And here's why. Because not only do we trust God to provide for us, but our generosity is in direct opposition to the sinful heart's proclivity to possessiveness. And whenever we trust in God to provide for us, it points that attacker again to the gospel. There's a pattern here in each of these illustrations. But our sinful hearts do have a natural proclivity to possessiveness, don't they? Possessiveness is a sinful characteristic of our fallen nature. We dislike giving things up even if it's temporary. We don't like to give up things that we believe belong to us. My, even as Christians, we often forget that nothing truly belongs to us. That we are only stewards of what God has given us. And when we die to our sinful proclivity to possessiveness, we point to the radical love and generosity of Jesus. And it's in those moments, the specific moments that Jesus is referring to in the context of his statement that we are pointing people to the generosity and to the love of Christ. Now, as we close, I don't want us to miss the big picture here. In each of these illustrations, Jesus is speaking about a specific situation in which we as believers are being persecuted for our faith. And we must not walk away from this text this morning. Here's my fear as I prepared, is that you would leave here this morning with a mechanical list of, of rules. That's not what Jesus is giving us here. Rather, what, what Jesus is trying to do here is change our, our understanding of what is fair. What is, what, 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 he wants to change our idea of, of equity. In other words, he's helping us understand that the equity of the kingdom of heaven looks a lot different than it does in our broken and sinful world. Ultimately, Jesus is pointing us to the good news of the gospel. And he's pointing us to radical grace and forgiveness that God has given to us by grace through faith through the severe, unfair treatment of his son on the cross. He wants us to see that Jesus changes everything, including what we believe to be fair. He wants us to remember that at one time we were hard set on seeking retribution. There was a time when our sinful hearts sought after vengeance. But now through the working of His Spirit, we long to show grace. We long to show the generosity of our Lord. We long to show love to those who persecute us. I'm reminded of a story about one of my heroes named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor of Westminster Chapel in London for 30 years, and then he, he lived for another 11 years in an obscure small place called Sandfields in, in Wales. And his wife, Bethan, I thought it was a misprint, I always, I always said her name was Bethany, but no, her name's Bethan. Have you heard that before? I thought that was interesting. Anyways. She tells a story of the remarkable conversion of a man that that Martin was ministering to. This man's name was Mark McCann. And McCann, he was the meanest guy in town. He was known, when he's walking down the street, you'd you'd go to the other side. He was just mean. This guy was horrible. He was the meanest man in town. He loved to fight. It didn't matter that he was 
65 years old, he was known for being brutal. And he was known for never losing a fight. In fact, when he would go to the fair, he would always take two friends with him because they, he knew that if he got into a fight that he would kill the person unless these two guys pulled them off, pulled him off of him. It's crazy. And even crazier is a story that Martin Lloyd-Jones tells about that Mark McCann, he comes home, his wife is fixing dinner. And if you have dogs, you know that this happens. But as he's washing his hands before he could get to the dinner table, his dog jumps up onto the table and eats his dinner. Any of us would be upset by this, but Mark McCann takes a kitchen knife and chops the dog's head off. It's crazy, right? This is this man. He's nuts. But Martin Lloyd-Jones ministers to this man. He shares the gospel with this man, and Mark McCann met Jesus. He was barely literate, and as Bethan tells the story, when he was first able to see the name of Jesus in the Welsh Bible, he wept. He, he kissed the Bible because he was completely changed from this vengeful, hateful man. These are my rights. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, law of the jungle type of man who now was loving and kind and generous. People no longer crossed to the other side of the street because Mark McCann was the first person to care for them and love them. And it was because of the change that the Holy Spirit did in Mark McCann's life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus changes everything. As we fall more in love with Him, as we follow Him more closely, His Holy Spirit changes our hearts. He changes our desires. We no longer desire to get even with enemies, but we understand the Gospel. And we understand what Christ has done for us. We no longer uh, are hard set on our legalistic desire for fairness. Think about how amazing it is that God chose not to be fair with you. For if we had what was coming to us and what we deserve, it would not be good. And so what motivates us, and I'm almost done, what motivates us is the realization that grace and mercy and love has been lavished upon us by a holy and righteous God. And we are undeserving of that grace and mercy. We've done nothing to earn or deserve the good gifts that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And so with this in mind, we follow Christ and we dedicate ourselves to the well-being of others, even those who mistreat us, including our enemies, including those who offend us and humiliate us. We stand firm for the sake of Christ and we do so because we want to see them saved. Like Mark McCann. See, despite our past hurts, we can resist the urge to retaliate. We can resist the urge and the desire to retreat into self-isolation because we no longer have to shy away from the pain And though our posture of grace may seem like weakness to the world around us, our strength and our power is not not in revenge, it's not in retribution, but it's in Christ, the Son of God, who will one day transform this world of injustice into a place of peace and safety. And when He does, the guilty no longer will go free. And the innocent will no longer suffer. And on that day, the righteousness of Christ will, Psalm 37 says, will shine like the dawn and his vindication like the noonday sun. And so in a moment, we're going to take communion and we're equipped with that hope that one day Jesus is going to return and the innocent will no longer suffer. We look forward to that day. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. It's a tough text. I thank you.
pray, Lord, that you would, that we would find rest in you. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of what we received in Christ and what we once deserved. Help us, Lord. It's easier said than done to put these illustrations, these principles into practice. And so, Lord, we're desperate for you and we need your help. Just continually remind us of the good news of the gospel so that whether it's in relationships, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, whatever, wherever it may be, that we can respond to insults with love and grace and prayerfully doing so so that you might also give those who are insulting us the gift of faith just as you have given us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.